Second uh, Chronicles 12. So next Sunday, I'm going to preach away, and I didn't want to start a new series today and then have a gap next week. Uh, but the week after that, I'm hoping to start two little mini teaching series on the books of Micah and Malachi. We've been in the New Testament, especially John's Gospel, for a long time, so we need to uh, we need to have a refresh, don't we? Um, so we're going to go to Micah and Malachi uh, later in the month. Uh, so today we're reading a somewhat arbitrary uh, choice of a passage, just to give ourselves a chance to get into a particular headspace of uh, a period of Bible history, so that we're kind of prepared for, for Micah Malachi. Um, so so here's, a, here's a basic Bible timeline. I think I've shown you this before. Uh, I think it was the Jonah series. I wanted to tell you where Jonah fitted in. Uh, so this is the, the Bible timeline, a lot of detail, but uh, creation on the left to Jesus in the red part where the cross is, uh, over to new creation in the yellow still to come. We're in the orange section, uh, second last over here. This is us over here. Um, and the arrow sort of shows God's people through history, the big black arrow. Uh, so we're in that orange section, a time of the church sharing the good news of Jesus and waiting for his return. Now, that's far too much detail, so we zoom in a little bit on the Old Testament, where we have Abraham and his family on the left. I hardly ever get to use this laser, so I'm going to use that. Uh, Abraham and his family on the left, uh, then Exodus and the promised land and all of that in this light blue over here. Um, you probably can't see, but, but this, is supposed to be, this is supposed to be kind of purple. This, this one looks more purple. So this is going to ruin my little pun. This is the purple patch of the Old Testament under uh, King David and King Solomon, the kind of high point. Um, so the people at that point were in God's land, living faithfully and experiencing God's blessing. And the absolute climax of Israel's history was the completion of the temple in Jerusalem by David's son, King Solomon. But as Solomon got older, his love for God faded, and he had his head turned to other gods. His succession plan as king was a mess, and the kingdom divided in two, which is why this black line suddenly forks into two. Ten tribes formed the northern kingdom called Israel with the capital city of Samaria, and two tribes formed the southern kingdom called Judah with the capital city of Jerusalem. Now, Israel didn't therefore have access to the temple, so they started setting up worship systems of their own. So perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, the northern kingdom sinned pretty deep and pretty fast. You can read about, the, uh, about that and the stories of Elijah and Elisha and King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Uh, and eventually, after many warnings and lots of false repentance, uh, the Assyrians came and wiped out the northern kingdom. You can see it's a dead end at the top of the screen there, uh, a dead end. Judah in the south sinned as well and was eventually conquered by Babylon, but it wasn't quite a dead end for them. The population was exiled, carted off to uh, what is now Iraq, uh, Babylon. So you can read about that in books like Daniel, uh, where he writes about his experiences there in exile. But God preserved a remnant of his people and brought them back to reestablish Jerusalem uh, and build the temple again and, and reestablish his presence with his people. Um, so when we come to Micah, uh, he's working in the southern kingdom in Judah, warning people uh, that all of their sin is going to lead to this being conquered and exiled in Babylon. Uh, and that the exiles down here at the bottom, they, they go and then they, they eventually return. So Malachi, the last of the prophets in the Old Testament, he writes after 
Uh, the exile is finished and the remnant has returned to Jerusalem. He's there when Ezra reads the law and Nehemiah builds the wall. Uh, and as we'll see when we get to Malachi, uh, when the whole experience doesn't really lead to spiritual change in God's people. So Micah and Malachi are going to bookend this uh, whole exile period for us uh, and leave us at the end of the Old Testament with a bit of a kind of feeling of desperation. I hope you don't mind feeling uh, desperate for a few Sundays. Uh, desperate for a different kind of salvation from God. Uh, desperate for God himself to come and save and change hearts and minds for good. And you know where that story's going, don't you? Um, and in the meantime today, we're going to set the scene somewhat arbitrarily, uh, as I say, with uh, this little episode from the very start of the decline. Uh, so Solomon is dead. The kingdom is uh, recently split, and Rehoboam is king of the two of the the two the two tribes and the southern kingdom of Judah. He's the first kingdom of the he's the first king of Judah. And now, confusingly, just to warn you, our chapter I think might refer to Judah as Israel a couple of times. Sorry about that. I'm not. I, I can't remember why that happens sometimes. But that's where we are. We're on that lower branch in the, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, just after the kingdom has split. So let's read uh, 2 Chronicles 12, uh, verses 1 to 12. Um, so, after Rehoboam's position as king was established, and he had become strong, he and all Israel, which means the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, and all Israel with him, abandoned the law of the Lord. And because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem in the fifth year of King Rehoboam with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen and the innumerable troops of the Libyans, Sukites, and Cushites that came with him from Egypt. He captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Then the prophet Shemaiah came to Rehoboam and to the leaders of Judah who had assembled in Jerusalem for fear of Shishak. And he said to them, this is what the Lord says, you have abandoned me, therefore I now abandon you to Shishak. The leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is just. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, this word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. Since they have humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but will soon give them deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. They will, however, become subject to him, so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other lands." When Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem, he carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including the gold shields that Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and assigned these to the commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance to the royal palace. Whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, the guards went with him, bearing the shields, and afterwards they returned them to the guard room. Because Rehoboam humbled himself, the Lord's anger turned from him, and he was not totally destroyed. Indeed, there was some good in Judah. Let me finish our uh, reading there, and we're, we're a long way from uh, John's gospel now, aren't we, Dorothy? 
it's a, it's a, a you, know, dark, you know, what is it? Wizard of Oz. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, we're a long way from Kansas. It's important we learn from our mistakes, uh, isn't it? Um, so we once moved house um, from, from a, a house with kind of, you know, square kind of boxy rooms into, um, is it a dormer bungalow it's called? You know, where the upstairs rooms have sort of partially sloped ceilings. Um, and they're all bedrooms usually. So you get out of bed in the dark. I'm six foot one. Uh, you get out of bed in the, in the dark and suddenly moving around, uh, around a bedroom became a, a risky thing to do because I keep hitting my head on these low ceilings. Uh, maybe you've had that experience. Um, <laughs> night times, of course, were the worst. I don't, I don't think I hit my head that often in broad daylight. Um, well, I don't really remember. I don't remember much from that time. Um, but it's important we learn from our mistakes, isn't it? So in Second uh, Chronicles 12, we find that God wants us to learn from our mistakes as well. And our, our big idea today is, is this. God mercifully disciplines his people those sins effects may remain. God mercifully dis- disciplines his people. Those sins effects may remain. So let's start with this idea. God sends discipline when his people stray. So look at verse 1. After Rehoboam's position as king was established and he had become strong, he and all Israel with him abandoned the law of the Lord. So as we mentioned, Solomon's succession is messy, and Rehoboam is king of these two of the 12 tribes. He's the first king of the southern kingdom of Judah. In chapter 10, Rehoboam stupidly ignores his father's advisors and misses a golden opportunity to reunite the kingdom. In chapter 11, he obeyed God's instruction through the messenger Shemaiah not to go to war with the north, Uh, And instead, he spent his energy on defenses at home. And then the priests kind of joined him, and and worship was maintained at the temple. And 11 verse 17, chapter 11 verse 17 says, Rehoboam walked in the ways of David and Solomon for three years. So things were okay. You know, we'd kind of, they'd have been on a slide, kind of uh, spiritually speaking, on a bit of a slide, but we've, we've, we've maybe hit the bottom We've stabilized, it's not ideal, but the decline has been stopped, and maybe we can move upwards from here. But in chapter 12, verse 1, we find that after three years of kind of growing confidence, self-reliance, building his defenses, Rehoboam abandoned the law of God. He did that personally, and the people of the kingdom of Judah did it along with him. They abandoned God. Now, that's the kind of pre-watershed version. Uh, you You get the gory details in 1 Kings uh, well, not well, gory enough. So, First um, Kings says Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed, more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim. Those are all kind of religious worship sites on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So it's like the worst thing that's ever happened in the land in the history of God's people or the people who were pretty evil before that. Uh, So Rehoboam's not just full of himself. He and his people didn't just neglect God's law. They've trampled all over it. And that's just not an option for God's people. So verses 2 to 4, because they'd been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak of Egypt 
attacked Jerusalem in the fifth year of King Rehoboam with 1,200 chariots. I want you to picture this. Uh, 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen, and I love this, the innumerable troops of the Libyans, Sukites, and Cushites that came with him from Egypt. Basically, he gathered all the forces of, of the northern uh, quarter of Africa and brought it in against uh, Judah and Jerusalem. And it's not a coincidence, so the attack came, verse 2, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord. Now, it's not like the king of Egypt was somehow alarmed at Judah's uh, kind of spiritual decline and came marching in to defend God's honor. No, Shishak's got his own agenda, but God has ordained this attack uh, and the timing of it, and he's using the nations that are not his people, his covenant people, people who are acting in their own interests. He's using them to fulfill his purposes in his people. And once the dust settles from 60,000 horses, not to mention chariots, Judah's fortified cities are flying a foreign flag and the capital is under siege. Uh, sometimes if you walk up at uh, Giltown Stud, if you, if you time it just right and you're fortunate, you can uh, maybe be out when three of the racehorses are training up and down the gallops. Now, the noise of three or four horses like you can feel it just a little bit in your chest as they sort of thunder past, uh, maybe about, I don't know, 50 yards away from the road. And uh, I just can't even imagine what 60,000 horses would sound like. Uh, it would sound like the end of the world, I think. Um, sometimes a, a country or a business or a sports team comes under new management, and the new management only makes things worse. Case in point, the football team I support, uh, which has had a shocker under every manager, for the last eight years. But check out God's people under the new management of Rehoboam. The nation is split. There's idolatry on every hilltop and under every tree. Their territory has been overrun. Jerusalem is surrounded. How can this be happening? It's a disaster. Um, well, in verse 5, God's messenger arrives to explain what is very, very obvious. Uh, the, the, verse 5, the prophet Shemaiah came to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah who had assembled in Jerusalem for fear of Shishak. And he said to them, this is what the Lord says, you have abandoned me, therefore I now abandon you to Shishak. How many times had God come to his people's rescue? How many times had they been surrounded and yet delivered? But not this time. Sounds hopeless, doesn't it? Sounds so final. Here is God's judgment. You've abandoned me, so I have abandoned you. And it's only fair. It's what God warned would happen uh, way back when his people first settled in this land. You've, you've trampled over my honor. You've trampled over my law. Your actions betray that you don't want me here, so I'll leave you to it. You thought it was your defenses that kept you safe, but it was my hand that held Shishak back. And now I've let him loose, and here he is. It sounds final, doesn't it? It sounds so hopeless. But I don't think we're to see God stomping onto the scene to sort of shout, I told you so, and just get angry and leave. This attack is not judgment. It's, well, it's not just judgment. It's discipline. It's discipline. God's prophet delivers this stern sentence from the judge, but there is an opportunity for appeal. If the guilty show remorse, the sentence might still be changed and reduced. And that's not what Shemaiah says, is it? But it is why he's here. Uh, God is taking the initiative with incredible grace. Uh, he could so easily have, have walked away. But after everything that, 
the king and his people have done. He's offering them a chance to turn around. So God sends discipline when his people stray. <clears throat> Before we go any further, we maybe want to just think about this in our own lives. Not all sin results in obvious discipline. We know that. And the other way around, not everything that's difficult indicates that there's some underlying sin. We can't say uh, there's a one-to-one -one relationship between good times. It's not that good times mean that God's pleased with us and bad times mean that God's angry. That's, that goes against several uh, parts of God's Word. We're promised trials. We're promised uh, pruning when we're fruitful, John 15. Um, even less can we make those assumptions about other people, my goodness. But God does discipline His people. And that means that when we experience difficult times, whether it's individually or, or corporately as a church, um, we should respond with a, a moment of, of self-examination. Are we abandoning God in some way? Um, is there something else in our lives or in our life together uh, that is more important to us than Him? Something that preoccupies us, something that, that we think will solve our problems, it becomes our goal, it becomes our Savior, it becomes our Lord. Maybe it's something tangible. We want to put our trust in wealth. It's basically what Rehoboam's doing, isn't it? Putting his trust in defense. Uh, or we put our trust in relationships. That's what's really going to make me happy. Or maybe it's more subtle. We want influence. We want approval from people. Uh, Rehoboam's issue really was a growing self-reliance. Don't need God. And therefore, I don't need the temple. I could do whatever we want, kind of spiritually speaking, doesn't matter because I'm, I'm self-reliant. Maybe that's uh, something we can look at, self-reliance. Hard times in our own lives or in the life of our church should lead to self-examination uh, because God does send discipline when his people stray. We won't always find uh, that hard times are connected to sin, perhaps not very often, uh, but it's possible. It's possible. God does send discipline when his people stray. That's hard to think about, but here's some good news God shows mercy when his people repent. God shows mercy when his people repent. Let's, um, let's read the, uh, the kind of turning point, if you like, of the story. So verses 6 to 8, and then verse 12. So verse 6, the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is just. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, this word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. Since they've humbled themselves, I will not destroy them but will soon give them deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. They will, however, become subject to him so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other lands. We'll come back to that phrase. Uh, and we know, it's all, we know it's important because we get it again in verse 12, this turning point. Because Rehoboam humbled himself, the Lord's anger turned from him and he was not totally destroyed. Indeed, there was some good in Judah. In other words, conditions were, were okay. Um, so God's sentence of judgment delivered by Shemaiah has the desired effect. Verse 6, as the king and the princes humble themselves and say, the Lord is righteous, the Lord is just. Um, you know, what, what else is there to say? They can't say they don't deserve it. They do. They can't say it's not fair. It is. And they can't say they weren't warned because they were. <clears throat> a God who is righteous, a God who is just, who achieves justice. Not a super popular idea these days, is it? We don't like the idea that God gets to set a standard for our lives and will one day hold us 
to account because we want to make our own choices and set our own standards. But on the other hand, we're crying out for justice. You turn on the news today, watch some reports from places like Ukraine, and it's just infuriating. It's disgusting. We're crying out for justice. Who will put this right? And that's, I mean, that's just one spot in the world, uh, one, one way in which we're crying out for justice. Um, human beings are hardwired to long for justice. Uh, a God who is righteous, a God who is just, who achieves justice, is the only sort of God who's worthy of the name. Uh, if God was only loving, only forgiving, um, just think how much he'd have to sweep under the carpet. And is that a God we really want to follow? Well, God is righteous and God is just, and that's good. It's good. So there's nothing for his people to do here but throw themselves at his mercy. Throw away their self-reliance uh, and instead humble themselves and turn to him. Uh, reject their rebellion and turn to him for mercy. Uh, and wonderfully and amazingly, uh, God is merciful. He gives Shemaiah this new message that he will not destroy, but he will deliver. The full wrath of God will be held back. Shishak is going to be turned around and sent home although not empty-handed. Shishak will show Judah the difference between serving God and serving the nations. But God is merciful. Um, and I, I won't major on this, but just look at God's sovereignty here. Again, we saw him bring the Egyptians in, and now he's going to turn them around and send them home. I don't know if you've ever seen a, uh, you know, a, a, a disobedient dog that's off the lead. It's escaped the lead, maybe slipped the harness, uh, maybe that bit where it, it chewed the lead has finally, you know, it's kind of finally snapped and it's running away with a little bit of lead still attached kind of comically. And the, the owner is, is chasing and shouting, but uh, with no control. Um, well, God has let Shishak off the lead. He's let him loose on Judah, but God is still in absolute control. Uh, he could turn this king on and off like a tap. The force that swept unstoppably to Rehoboam's front door uh, was entirely at the beck, of, beck and call of God and was just turned around and sent home. Uh, so God shows mercy when his people repent. And that's what God wanted. He wanted his people to turn back to him. That's what discipline's all about, isn't it? You know, to change behavior. That's why we have speed cameras. It's not just to, um, to catch people and generate revenue, <clears throat> probably. Uh, it's to persuade us to drive within the limits, to drive safely, isn't it? You know, that's supposed to change our behavior. Why do we discipline our children? It's not just punishment. We want to correct their behavior. We want to change the way they think about things and uh, the way they control their, their actions. Uh, well, here, God's discipline has brought his people to repentance. It's turned them around, turned them back to him. This is where the story turns, and so this is what we've got to learn. God is righteous and just. And there's nothing for his people to do but throw themselves at his mercy. In fact, under God's discipline, there's nothing for us to do but throw ourselves on God's mercy. Uh, Hebrews 12 said God's, it says God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so if you know that you're disobeying God in some way, or if your circumstances might point towards God's discipline, repent. This is the turning point. 
Maybe, maybe you've become self-reliant like Rehoboam. Isn't that what the world trains us to be? You know, kind of self-made, self-helped, uh, self-reliant. Uh, that's an easy one to diagnose, actually, just as an aside, because you can tell whether you're self-reliant by whether or not you pray. If you never pray, probably self-reliant. Uh, or that'll be one of the problems anyway. But God's discipline turns us and prompts us to repent, to turn back to him. And the Christian life is a life of repentance. That should be our daily pattern anyway. Take up your cross and follow me. Put the old life to death. Uh, as a church, let's watch carefully for areas where we might need to repent. And let's do it quickly. God shows mercy when his people repent. And as far as the story goes, I would love to stop there. Uh, but there is a little more. And uh, it gets a little bit serious again. Because God leaves reminders to help his people learn. Um, there's a hint in verse 8 of what's coming, and here it comes in verse 9. So when Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem, he carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. Uh, just for context, if you were reading this as one of God's people, maybe a couple of hundred years later, you, you would just your heart would sink reading this from the very high point of God's people, suddenly it's all, it's all just draining away. Um, he took everything, including the gold shields that Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and assigned these to the commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance to the royal palace. And whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, so from the, temple to the, uh, from the palace to the temple, the guards went with him bearing the shields, and afterwards back they came and returned them to the guard room. So so under God, what's, the, what's this about? Under God's uh, direction, Shishak turns for home. He's away back home. But waging war is expensive, and he's going to recoup his costs from the losing side. Like a, some sort of, um, well, never mind. There might be lawyers in the room, so we'll say nothing, uh, quite, nothing bad about them. Um, he raids the palace, and he raids the temple, uh, taking, verse 9, everything. Everything. Just imagine what Rehoboam's grandfather, King David, would have thought if he had seen this. What a catastrophe for this nation. And we get this strange detail in verses 11 and tw uh, 10 and 11 of the shields. That's not a major detail, but it is mentioned in, in 2 Chronicles and 1 Kings. In chapter 9, it's King Solomon who commissions these 200 large and 300 small gold shields, perhaps made using, with as, uh, made, uh, using as much as two metric tons of gold can't even picture that. Uh, and Solomon had put them in one part of the palace. They were hung up for decoration. Uh, so they weren't even used. I don't think you could use a gold shield anyway. It would be far too heavy, wouldn't it? Um, uh, anything we know about gold, it's super heavy. Uh, and here, because Shishak carries them off, Rehoboam has to make some substitutes. And the replacements are bronze, not gold. Now, I don't like getting small change when I go into a shop. I don't know about you. Uh, you know, you, you break a nice crisp banknote and you get a pocket full of shrapnel in return. And it weighs down your pocket and it's just uncomfortable. Uh, but I do love when one of those coins is new. I love getting a new coin. Uh, so bright and shiny, just beautiful, beautiful. Uh, and copper coins are some of the most surprising, aren't they, when they're new, because they're so different to an ordinary copper coin. An ordinary copper coin is, you know, it's kind of this brown, 
but a, but a new copper coin is, it like shines at you a little bit. It's amazing. Uh, but there's no mistaking even the shiniest copper coin for a proper golden coin. And I'm sorry that euros are so mixed up in their coin colors. You've got a bit of silver and a bit of gold in the euro and the two euro coin. But you might imagine a, you know, a, a golden euro or a golden pound coin or maybe you know of some other currencies where there's a gold coin. Such a difference even between the shiniest copper and a gold coin. And you can bet that every time Rehoboam walked past those bronze shields, he thought about the gold ones that his father had made. And he saw these bronze shields a lot because they didn't just hang on a, a wall or sit in a storeroom. Um, they were carried around by the guards who escorted him wherever he had to go. Uh, so he saw these all the time. Maybe they were even in use because he didn't feel that safe. You know, he's not, that, he's not as safe behind his defenses as he had once been. But the king is left with this nagging reminder of what was and what still might have been uh, if, if they hadn't turned from God. A lesson to be faithful like his father Solomon for most of his life and especially like his grandfather David. This episode is a massive step backwards for God's people. And you can see it in light of some other te Old Testament themes. So, for example, uh, to Abraham, God promised that his descendants would bring blessing to the nations. Well, here the nations are used by God to bring discipline on the people. At the Exodus, the departing Israelites plundered Egypt, didn't they? Well, here Egypt comes back to plunder Israel. In fact, at the Exodus, the Israelites were called out from serving the king of Egypt to go and serve uh, the Lord in the desert. As worship the Lord or serve the Lord is the same word. Well, here in verse 8, they're in danger of going from serving the Lord back to serving the king of Egypt. Entering Canaan and, uh, for the first time, Israel drove out nations that, that disgusted God with their shameful practices. Well, here Israel is worse than the nations. Under Solomon, uh, nations brought gifts of treasure. Well, here the nations take payoffs of treasure. This is head-in-your-hand stuff for God's people. They need to learn from this. They need this reminder. They need to know that God's covenant blessings depend on some sort of covenant faithfulness. Disaster's been averted, but damage has been taken. And God leaves these reminders to help his people learn. Sometimes... Uh, isn't it true that sin carries lasting consequences? So we might, uh, we might collect a few of these in our life. We might collect uh, fractured relationships or financial hardship. We might uh, find health problems as a, uh, as a consequence of sin or perhaps even legal punishment. Um, churches might find our, our fellowship damaged or our witness in the community set back. Again, we, we shouldn't make any rash assumptions uh, especially about other people. But it is part of God's discipline to, to include these reminders that teach us and remind us to obey him. God does mercifully discipline his people, but sin's effects might remain. And what we need to remember, though, is that while the consequences of sin may remain, our guilt before God is gone completely. This is perhaps the most important thing to take from this passage. The earthly consequences of sin may never leave us, but our guilt before God has already 
been completely removed. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, We're going to see as we cover uh, Micah and Malachi that the kings and the people of Israel were slaves really to sin. Uh, that warnings didn't keep them faithful, that blessings didn't encourage them, that exile didn't change them, that rebuilding uh, didn't bring lasting faithfulness. As the Old Testament closes, uh, we're crying out for a new kind of intervention from God, and it comes in Christ, the one who lived for God and who died for us, who rose and ascended and reigns, whose spirit makes us alive, gives us new hearts, that long to live for him and that can live for him. Uh, And so if we are in Christ, even if there are consequences of sin in our lives, let's make sure that we don't cling on to guilt. We don't cling to guilt that God has already removed and put on Jesus. Jesus paid it all. It's done. Don't cling to guilt. Use guilt to bring you to turn quickly to him again and then rejoice in his grace all over again. Have your mind blown by the magnitude of what Jesus did at the cross that nothing else in all history could achieve. Jesus has taken away our guilt and given us new hearts to follow him. We're going to think about that and remember the Lord Jesus around the table in a moment, but why don't we uh, pray and then sing uh, before we do that. Let's pray. Then we'll sing. Father, thank you for your word. We prayed that you would impress on us something of the the depth of who you are and what you've done for us through Jesus. Uh, We asked perhaps that you would uh, surprise and delight us with the gospel today uh, and help us to understand it more. Well, this passage confronts us with our sin uh, by showing us what you think of it. This passage shows us something of our shame and our guilt before you. But we've also seen again the effect of your grace in Jesus. Hebrews says he made purification for sins. And we've seen something of that today. That even if the consequences of sin remain, the guilt does not. For we are clean in Christ. You don't write us off. But you mercifully discipline us for our good. To change us. To produce a harvest of righteousness in us. Father, help us to respond today in faith, in obedience and in wonder at your Son, in whose name we pray, and whose sacrifice we remember in just a moment. Amen.